My name is Mark Solomon, and this is Never Was. never was a miracle worker too bad it was right about now that would come in handy welcome back welcome back to our ongoing discussion regarding whether or not we are in or out are you still in the faith or the church or have you moved on now today we're going to get a lot more from matt johnson and chris foley but we're also going to hear more from you your letters. Um, and I want to stress this. This is not a two-part episode, okay? It's just the first couple cups of coffee in an ongoing discussion. One that might lead to punches thrown in the parking lot. I don't know. I hope to hear from you. I hope to hear your experiences and uh, your responses to what you've heard on these shows. Uh, I, I, think it's, I think it's a valid topic, valid discussion. We're going to get right into it, but I, I want to briefly state again, I am not a miracle worker, but I have experienced things I can't explain, things I can't just write off. So somebody's working them miracles, right? Like, how am I not a raging lunatic <laughs> or a predatory monster or damaged goods just waiting to die? If I'm any of those things, I'm not doing this show. That's all there is to it. Look, I'm going to elaborate on that in a second, but I want to give you fair warning. If you got little ones in the car while you listen to this, you may want to play something else, like right now, because it's about to get kind of ugly, and some ugliness can wait. So last chance, put in the Frozen soundtrack or something. All others, strap in. Pre-adolescence. Webster's medical definition of pre-adolescence is the period of human development just preceding adolescence, specifically the period between the approximate ages of 9 and 12. Now, that definition goes back to like 1930, but for me, I'd say it's not far off. My family found faith in Jesus when I was about 8 years old, somewhere between 4th and 5th grade as I remember. At age nine, I came forward at the little church we went to in Madera Ranchos, Village Baptist Church. As I stated in my book, Simplicity, I just felt my feet moving. That is how I remember it. But we're not going to dig much further in that, per se. Rather, I'd like to shift the focus of this story to the life that my family had now entered. He talks! He really talks! Well, what's your name? Salty. Salty, why are you crying? Because nobody will sing my music. They just tossed me off in the corner and they forgot all about me. We'll sing your music. Yeah. We'll sing your songs, won't we? Yeah, yeah. But, but I'm a kid's songbook. I need kids to sing my song. We're kids. You are? Yeah, but how do we start? 
Well, this might sound silly, but but first you need to think happy thoughts about Jesus. Happy thoughts about Jesus? Yeah, like he's your Lord and Savior, and he loves you so very much. He he loves me? Yeah, he loves you. He he loves me. Yeah, we're he loves me. You're doing it. You're doing it. It's the late 70s and early 80s, okay? We're at the church quite a bit. My parents, eager to be around other Christians, found fellowship with all sorts of people. But one family uh, really appealed to my pops, the Trimbles. I'm not sure why. I think it had to do with the father of the family, Earl. You know, he was like this tough old bird, and my old man, fresh out of tough construction guy world, seemed to really jive with him. Earl was a big fella, as I remember. Gruff and mountainy, and as it happened, lived on a mountain. We called it Trimble Mountain because Earl's family, lots of Earl's family, lived up there in the foothills of Yosemite in Madera County. They were farmers and ranchers and construction types, as I remember. But they were welcoming to us, and our family spent a lot of time with them. I was there for potluck, for family time holidays. I was there for Sunday afternoons. Hikes and BMX bike rides down huge and terrifying hills. Slowly pedal back in once you get going. Learn that the hard way. I was there when they added onto their house. It was huge and had all these back rooms. I was there when a, a truck came up from the pastry shop with Dale pastries for their pigs. I was also there picking out the good ones that me and the other kids shared. <laughs> it's called white trash. Deal with it. I was there and we shot and slaughtered one of the pigs. I seem to remember some debate over a pig bladder and who was going to get it, but that might have been like an episode of Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's the thing. Little House on the Prairie, I think, was the appeal for my parents. It was like that up there. They had just been saved from their sins and a simple life of hardworking people, humble before God. It appealed to them. So we spent a lot of time there. Now, I mentioned the house and all the back rooms. They had quite a few foster kids, something my brain could not fully comprehend. They were like adopted kids, but not. Is their last name Foster? Anyway, one of their kids, their actual kid, was one of my first childhood heroes. He was their second oldest and uh, much older than me. He even had a girlfriend uh, who was missing teeth. <laughs> Oh my gosh, sorry. Um, his name was Alan. I won't describe Alan, but uh, to say this. One summer day, our families were hiking through Big Creek, California to some natural swimming holes in an amazing waterfall we all like to go to and for swimming and diving and stuff. We had, walk, we had to walk this long pathway alongside the creek uh, below the pools, and Alan was walking behind me on the trail. 
Suddenly, he reached his left arm in front of me and scooped me up off the ground. It's like tossed me backwards, you know. It shocked me, but there was a rattlesnake right on the trail in front of me. Alan, a giant to me at the time, he just snatched the snake up with his bare hand right off the trail and threw it down the ravine. The family's all gathered around and killed the shit out of that snake, eventually taking its head off. Hero status unlocked. Now things take a bit of a dark turn, okay? I've talked about this freely with people I know and for most of my life, though it's not something I've ever shared on a large scale because it, it just never came up. And does something like this come up, really? But throughout my childhood, my pre-adolescence, Alan sexually abused me on a regular basis. At the time, you just don't know what's happening, you know? And you don't know what it means. Here's a weird one. When you're a kid and your hero gets babysitting duties, you're stoked. Uh, when he claims that he sleeps with his eyes open, you just think that's cool. <laughs> Nothing further. Now listen, I'm not going to go into further detail, but knowing what I know now, let's just say I know what I know to be true. But, no one else did. No one else knew it. Now, fast forward to a few years later. I just started high school. We haven't been spending any time around the Trimble family since my parents, in an act of courage that only now do I fully appreciate, have left Village Baptist Church at this point. They'd confronted the pastor on some bad doctrine, then did so with some elders, and then did so in front of the whole church. And we left. And still, no one knew. I mean, honestly, I didn't know they needed to. When you're that age, you just don't see things for what they are. Again, hero, I thought. He just likes hanging out with me until I go to sleep. So one night, my family and I are at the movies. I'm maybe in ninth grade. And outside, there are hushed voices and strong body language between my parents and some of their friends. Shortly after, my dad asks me, uh, Mark, did Alan ever do anything that made you feel uncomfortable? Like physically? You know, something to that effect. It's not an easy question to ask your son, but I think he just... He just trusted them, you know? And he trusted their family so much that he couldn't, he, he couldn't wait to make sure I was okay. You know? I mean, you can only imagine you put yourself in that position. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what that's like. Well, as it happens, Alan, snake killer had taken a job at some pre- or middle school, I don't know which, and had been abusing some of the boys. And he got caught and was going to prison for two years. Two years. I can say I really didn't think about him again until a bit later. So now I'm 21 years old, and I'm living in Fresno. It is now officially a little later and for all intents and purposes, I'm wilding out, okay? I was well on my way to the Nebuchadnezzar era I mentioned on the last show. So I'm at the Fashion Fair Mall in Fresno, just walking around like I have money, which I don't. And I'm an angry young man. My own sins were catching up to me. I couldn't escape them, and I wanted to put them on someone else. Anyone or anything else, rather than face them myself. So I'm walking through the food court area, and who do I see behind the counter at Burger King? My old hero, Alan himself. Now, I'm a lot bigger 
than I was then. And uh, I have seen and done some things. And I just got tunnel vision. I hadn't thought about that kid since, uh, you know, we found out he was arrested. Uh, All I could think is, I'm going to beat this man's ass right now behind the counter at Burger King. That will be his fate, you know. And I assure you, there would be blood, okay? So, I don't know, man, it's just where I was at. I took a step forward, and clear as a bell, I heard a voice in my head. Turn around and walk away. Now look, you don't have to believe me. It's okay if you don't. I don't really care. But that's what I heard, and somehow, miraculously, I believe, I did. Something about the voice of God that you just don't brush off, you know, kind of scared me. One last fast forward. Two years later, Alan Trimble died of AIDS. Now look, do I think God gave Alan AIDS to get him back for what he did to me and who knows how many other boys? Actually, no, I don't. Okay. This is the result of the life he was living. Do I think there was some justice in there? You're damn right. But the reason I, st- I shared this story is not any of that. Not at all. I shared it because I've always shared it, should the conversation warrant it. You know? It's, um... Look, did the guy break my brain? Well, coupled with what he did to me and all the other shit I've seen in my life, probably. He probably contributed to that. You know? We've had the subject of therapy come up a few times on the show lately, and that experience is probably on the list of reasons I might consider it. But really, it doesn't define me. Not to be cold, but it doesn't excuse anything I've consciously done. You know, And try as I may, I can't justify my darker thoughts because of it. I've just never been able to. And given the fact that it happened within a church setting and all the trust that was involved there, Maybe in a lesser degree, you know, but it, it was a church setting. And it was church related and it was people that my family trusted. I just, I can't use this to say goodbye, not to my faith, not the church. I don't feel God abandoned me. I really don't. I don't understand why it happened or why it was allowed to happen, but it did. And here I am talking to you about it. People are fallen. They're imperfect. Deal with it, man. I have to tell myself that all the time, by the way. And remind myself of my own fallenness. I'm just, for the sake of the conversation, it must be said. People are imperfect, fallen beings. I believe that while the damage may have in some Hollywood fashion made me stronger, sure, maybe, it doesn't change what I know to be true. It doesn't give me an out in the face of it. And please understand, I do not believe any similar experience you may have had is somehow less or even the same as mine. Neither do I believe that if you didn't respond the way I have that you're somehow in error, okay? I believe God meets us individually, and how you recover from your own horrors is how you recover from them. But, like Jim Chaffin reminded me a few weeks ago, I came to give you life and that more abundantly. I want that life. And I just can't have it if I continue to hold on to the damage. I want that life and I have a choice here. 
Pursue that abundant life despite my failures and scars or don't. Did I come to this place on my own? No, I don't think so. I think it is miraculous. I also think it gives me the edge I need to suggest in light of all we've been discussing here that you and I and all of us need to at least attempt to do the same. Stop. Think. Decide. In or out? Either way, what will you allow to define you? In case any of this sounds familiar, that story was behind the song It's Beautiful Once You're Out Here and uh, came off the Stavesacre How to Live with a Curse album. And I have to say, I think I do a much better job expressing my thoughts on the whole thing there. Let it be. 
ain't going to back off for nobody. I'm just going to get bolder and wilder than I've ever been. It just seems like the wilder and the bolder I get and the bigger I talk, the bigger, the wilder the miracles happen in people's lives. <laughs> He's crazy. No, I'm not crazy. I'm just drunk on new wine. I'm telling you, I learned how to let go of the old and no longer trust in myself. I learned how to trust in God. Hallelujah. I used to drink wine. I used to drink lots of alcohol and do lots of drugs. But I'm telling you, I am so filled with this stuff. It's absolutely, just absolutely beyond all that I ever thought even existed in God. I'm just getting into a prophetic vein. Someone with a digestive tract problems, quickly call. There's a miracle for you. Intestinal problems. Someone with similar intestinal problems. We've seen several people being delivered from the classmate bag. Disability with a child. Some type of a learning disability. We've seen many, many children healed. We've seen midgets grow. <laughs> Uh, okay, the following reading is sort of a blend of two emails from friend of the show, Benjamin Gums. It's got his initial letter and then some further elaboration that I asked him to add in. Ben, I hope I do you proud here. I did my best. I've spent 40 years in church. From a hellish experience in Christian school to full-time ministry, I have managed to stay faithful to an everlasting Messiah. I went to college in La Crosse, Wisconsin for visual communications. After college, I got plugged into a church that I visited on and off years prior. The church just added on to the existing building and ordered tens of thousands of dollars of audio and video equipment. Well, since film was my life, why not get involved in the video ministry? So I did. The pastor was unique and charismatic and so full of life. It was a word of faith church and the name it claim it movement was at its prime. Oh boy. Oh boy. My first day of full-time ministry, editor, producer of church programming, for those who are curious, uh, I was told this is a business, not a church, for my orientation. Big name Hollywood asshat preachers came and went, and the congregation was financially tapped out. I sat through meetings with the pastor and visiting quote-unquote prophets, where the prophets were fed information of certain people that wanted to leave, and ironically, sorry Ben, coincidentally, couldn't help it. People wanted to leave who were coincidentally big givers. That evening, the prophet, huh, the prophet had words of encouragement for those very people that wanted to leave. What is this, man? Fletch lives, for crying out loud. Sin flooded the gates of this place, and the absence of God wasn't even noticed. People lost homes, cars, spouses, and much more. Sin ran wild. There were suicides, drug use, and overdoses, cover-ups, adultery, and much more. Jeez Louise, dude, where the heck were you? In fact, even the pastor's teenage son was busted, <laughs> enjoying himself immensely, watching porn online at church. We as the congregation were told that what happened to the pastor's son was the devil attacking him, but everyone else was disobedient and that this is why bad things happened to him. Effing bullshit and many of us still bought it. 
We were also taught to disregard the Old Testament, which houses the Torah, you know, the thing Jesus taught, as it was outdated. The Old Testament had run its course and didn't apply and should be torn out of every Bible. Holy the hell! Unless the giving was down, then of course Malachi and Abraham came to the rescue. What do you know? God was a marketing ploy and people were more than financially raped from this place. Servanthood was about the congregation cleaning the pastor's house, mowing his yard, raking his leaves, and even putting up his shitty Christmas lights in an ice storm. I almost fell off his roof. Jeez, Ben. I realized the demonic plague that not only was I was a part of, I encouraged. That guilt haunts me to this very day. One fateful day, I was confronted by my pastor and administrator that my camera crew wasn't tithing enough and they needed to be fired. Uh, incidentally, these people were volunteers, as I found out later. <laughs> yeah, they didn't even get paid. They got fired from not, a, not having a job. Amazing. Malachi 3.10 was then used, out of context, of course, to support their opinions. Once I corrected the context of Scripture to them, I then said that I would do no such thing. My crew's tithe was their dedication to my particular ministry. After this argument, dun, 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 I was then fired. The Bible promises trials and tribulations to all. I do not fault God. I wasn't a victim in all this. I was also to blame. I knew what was right and what was wrong. My passion for film and ministry clouded my judgment and even put a distance between Christ and myself. I didn't just buy the lies. I filtered it down to other people that served underneath me and whom I called my closest friends. Those people's blood is on my hands. I will be held accountable for that someday. I realized the demonic plague I was a part of, watching people get financially, spiritually, and emotionally raped while I stood by and watched this is sickening. That guilt still haunts me. I fault man's impression of God. I love him. I love his word. But I don't think I will ever step foot in a church again. Ben. Oh, I just weave in, in and out of the prophetic word. I just weave in and out of the spirit. Some people say, oh, that's just hype. That, he's just act. If you're a believer, you don't act this stuff. You don't conjure it up, make it up. It bubbles up. <laughs> it bubbles up. It bubbles up. That's where prophet prophesies from that bubbling, from that inner. It just swells up like a river of living water for those that are thirsty. I know. It's low hanging fruit. But I had to get one in there. Also, I'm not sure that I'm actually saying any words in that song. <laughs> oh, that was for you, Jim Chaffin. Okay, moving on. Seth Walden writes, I'll try and keep it short. I was born and raised in the church, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, without fail for my first 18 years on this earth. I believed with every ounce of my soul. Stavesacre and many of the bands on Tooth & Nail were the soundtrack to my high school years. And for years, I begged my parents to let me go to Cornerstone. They finally blessed the trip, and so began one of the best weeks of my life. 
Every band I loved rocked those sweaty tents, and yes, they were sweaty. The best show, hands down, was from my favorite band, all dressed in black with red ties around their necks. Stavesacre. I only put that in there because I'm an egomaniac. No, he wrote this. I'm just, I'm just reading, folks. About midweek at Cornerstone, I was awoken in my tent. I grabbed my Bible and began to read as I did every morning. Upon the first sentence as I read about the resurrection, I closed the Bible and said to myself, This shit isn't real, and I haven't opened the Bible since. No big event shook the foundations of my faith, but there I was, surrounded by thousands of Christians, all having the times of their lives, and I was in my tent, a born-again atheist. Fast forward 15 years, and my wife and I welcomed our first child into this world. We also started making new friends who kept inviting us to their church. We went and have now been attending for the last year and a half. I love this church. It's young, forward-thinking, loving, accepting, and a great environment for our daughter to be around. But I am still of the same mind I was in that tent at Cornerstone. I have accepted that I may never again believe as I once did. But something has brought me back to the church. On a side note, and a bit more personal, I just wanted to say to you that I've been following for... Oh, we don't need to get into that. That's between me and Seth. Right, Seth? Seth, I got one thing for you. I'm going to throw this question out there. Just out of curiosity, what is it that isn't real? I just... I'll, I need more information. Um, I'd like to know. Uh... And I'm not disagreeing with you. <laughs> That's not my job in this. I'm here to sound. But I'd like to hear what it was that you don't believe in specifically or if it was just a general disbelief. But I'm asking that because I think it's important to the story, not because I'm battling you. This fella woke up and just didn't believe anymore. I think that's got more sincerity than a lot of the testimonies I've heard over the years. I can tell you this. When you listen to this right now, do you believe him? Do you believe that Seth is telling the truth? Because I do. Coming from that evangelical world, in particular, the Southern California, you know, Central California, Southern California, Calvary Chapel. Calvary Chapel is huge in California. Yeah. I mean, that's just all there is yeah. to it. You know, Chuck Smith being from Orange County and all. I visited and, there once and years ago. You visited yeah. there? Yeah. You know, and my own experience with that church, I've, you know, I've, I've discussed a few times. But ultimately, I felt like all the problems that we had there. A lot of them were rooted in a lack of church authority, mm -hmm. but also a lack of historical, I don't know, I guess information, yeah. just any kind of coloring in of the blank spots, you know? I, th I felt like there was a lot of, of assumptions being made on certain times in, in our history, almost to the point where history wasn't even considered, you know? I mean, that's, that's largely been my experience Coming up in that, in that, and that's just mine, you know, I don't know. I'm not trying to speak for everybody. We're all so careful to say that, I'm afraid. I, I, I hate to 
<laughs> I hate to put that out there all the time. But anyway, hearing what you're what you're talking about and knowing what I grew up in, I I felt like this is a definite match mm-hmm. <laughs> for this conversation, you know. I sent you emails. I, I, you know, you read a few of them. I, I got your email back, which I finally got to read this morning. And I, it just kind of blew me away. You know, I see this, this, uh, ongoing hole. I don't know what it is. It's, it's like a pothole that no one ever fills in, you know, and eventually it ends up ruining the street or something. And mm-hmm. I'd love to go in a little further on, um, your take on, your take on what you read and, and just kind of your perspective. And I know you're not coming in here trying to, to claim to have all the answers or, or not have answers that you do have, you know what I yeah, mean? It's, yeah. You know, there's some courage involved here that is, is required. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, if you take the, if you take the church history, if you take the church authority, and honestly, if you take just a more intellectual view, like not, not intellectual meaning for the higher up, mm-hmm out of reach, but use your brain, (laughs) use your intellect and, and turn it on. I feel like so much more, so much of the conversation might change. And, uh, I don't know. I, I'd love to hear you kind of, kind of weigh in on what you said and I don't know, share it with people. Cause it, it, to me, it answers a lot. So I don't know know if that's very clear or not. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, as I told you, I mean, I'm, I'm a little nervous to, kind of even talk about it just because, you know, I don't, you know, who am I? <laughs> but, uh, you know, so I'm just humbled just to be able to to share a little bit. I mean, really, maybe from my own experience, but also, you know, so many of, of our friends from back in the day who were yeah. going to Cornerstone and we were, you know, playing with a lot of bands in the Southeast. Um, so many of our friends have just have left the church have left Christianity altogether. And so, yeah. you know, it just has always caused me to think, well, why, why is that? And then, so when I talk to a lot of my friends, because a lot of them, you know, I'm still in touch with, you know, when they tell me why they left, you know, I, I really, I can't blame them <laughs> at all. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. You know, because I, I listen to them and I listen to, you know, the, the heart wrenching, you know, narration of maybe something they experienced in their church and they just got really hurt or um, they had kind of a personal crisis of faith. And rather than having people around them to really listen to them, they were just, well, you can't say that. (laughs) And I think just a general cynicism. And I I see so much of that. I, I think particularly in that subculture that we were all a part of, you know, we weren't mainstream Christian people. Um, and so I guess I'll use I statements, <laughs> you know, I was becoming very, very cynical against everything that I was seeing. And, you know, I think that cynicism can metastasize and become, you know, like a cancer. And, um, yes. you know, once it does that, I, I think it's just, there's no turning back at that point. And, you know, so I just think it's so important to offer, some hope. And I, I know in some of our email correspondence, you know, we were talking about that a little bit of, you know, when people, you know, leave the church, you know, you ask the question, are you in or are you out? Um, mm-hmm. You know, I don't even know if, 
we should. That's not the right yeah, question. Maybe it's not the right question. Um, yeah, I think it's possible. Um, After you're reading your email, I'm pretty convinced it's not. <laughs> well, <laughs> just because, I mean, I, I think we're all on a uh, kind of a spectrum, you know, like my oldest son is autistic and we, we call that the autism spectrum, you know, because there isn't okay. a classic autism. Well, I think, are we in or out? You know, I think maybe that's more of a, of a spectrum. And, um, I think what it means is we just need to get, get honest with ourselves. Um, you know, if we're rejecting the church or we're, you know, rejecting God, well, you know, what, what is this God that we are rejecting? What is this Christianity we're rejecting? And, you know, sometimes I wonder, like when I've listened to my friends talk about the Christianity they're rejecting or the God they're rejecting, you know, I, I don't believe in that God either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I don't believe in that Christianity either. And, you know, so I just, I just think as people are working through grief, because I really think that's what it is, is people are grieving something. Maybe they're grieving the loss of, I don't know, maybe the first fruits of faith that they had as a young child, you know, feeling safe and secure uh, in the church. And they grow up and they realize, wow, you know, there's crazy people here and, <laughs> you know, mm. there's crazy stuff that goes on. Well, I think, you know, ultimately, you know, we have to come to an adult faith that somehow yeah. embraces all of that, that tension. And, you know, where is God in the midst of it? Maybe he's somehow in this murky depths of this mm-hmm. <laughs> craziness that I, I see around me. And, um, you know, so I think just being honest about all of that and, um, you know, trying to, well, where is the real God? (laughs) Well, the real God, please stand up. And so I always come back to, and I know I mentioned this in my email and I tell our kind of inquirers at church when we have these inquirers classes that really our whole life, our whole Christianity and everything is really responding to that question that Christ asked his disciples you know, who do you say that I am? <laughs> you know, and how do we answer that? I think, you know, historically, there's a theological answer that I, I think is very full and wonderful. Uh, but we also have to answer that uh, kind of through our life. It's a personal question as well. Who do you right. say that I am? And how do I answer that through, you know, my daily life, you know, and my struggles and my story and um, and I think that's important because if we're honest about our story and if we're grieving and if we feel hurt and we're cynical, well, I just don't think we should define our lives by, by all of that. I think ultimately yeah. we want to get out of that just victim syndrome and just take responsibility for our, ourselves. The victimhood versus the adult faith. You know, I think that's. It's hard to admit, maybe for some folks, including myself, oh, me too. when, you know, when we're, you know, this is, I am really hurt. I am definitely, no, I am definitely hurt here. Now, hold on a second. I am wounded. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's true. You are wounded, but how long you want to stay yeah. wounded? If this was an actual battlefield wound, you wouldn't sit there and be like, Hey, look, there's a huge cannonball hole in my stomach. What a drag. I can't believe they shot me. Hey, everybody, did you see I got shot? You know, you would go to get help. You would you would do whatever you could to heal the wound, yeah, right? Yeah, and not be defined Whereas, by it. Yeah, 
and and I also, I mean, I'll say it. I think there's something about this I'm wounded by Christianity where if you stick around and stay wounded as long as you are, you know and I know and everybody knows why you're doing that. You are trying to do that to justify, whether or not you may even be conscious of it anymore, you want to justify doing what you want to do. You know, you want to justify going your own route. That's what I, I, I firmly believe that. I mean, that may have only been a, a, the, the truth in my own life. <laughs> but, you know, anytime I held on to a wound of the church long enough for it to get me to turn off the path in any way without asking myself difficult questions, without challenging myself to take things a little further I just was content to be wounded. The fact is, I was doing that so that I could justify saying, well, that's it for me. I'm going this way. (laughs) Do you think that that it's accurate to say that it sounds like some of this moralism is the result of where that leads is what we're seeing, you know? People who are no longer... It's like they, they come to the church, they're working under this this guise of, of uh, the grace of Jesus, but then once they get there and they start working, it's all of a sudden things have changed and the, and the game has changed a little bit and someone changed horses midstream or whatever. Yeah. I mean, is that where you're going with this? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there's a lot of different varieties of it. And especially if you are working on staff at a church, you're having to... You got to perform like you would in any other job. Mm-hmm. But what messes with people's head is that you're, t- you're talking in spiritual categories, you know, so you got to grow the church. You know, if you're a youth minister or something, you got to make sure the kids, you're getting the kids there right. or, you know, whatever the metric is when you're messing with using business categories and then you're, um, but you're dealing with gospel issues as well those don't mix real well that's the thing that's confusing to me and i'm sorry to go kind of off the rails but it's it's sort of where i've been going with this from from everything that i've read i can't help but kind of go back this to this is doesn't it seem like this approach to the church per se like you know quote unquote the church when it starts to mirror a business i just don't see i don't see where where that is being successful. Yeah. I, I don't know that I've seen a lot of, ex, of, a, of a lot of those things all of a sudden turn out to be awesome, especially yeah. the, the, the church that I was part of in, in Huntington Beach, which I was involved in a church that became so almost like its own cult, you know, uh, it's a cult of, of uh, this Calvary Chapel doctrine meets like you gotta, you gotta be willing to do the work, you know, you gotta be willing to do the work for Jesus, man. And everything was, you know, I told my pastor one night, Hey man, I'm freaking tired. I'm working yep. full time and I'm here over. I'm, I don't even work at this church. I'm just a member. I'm supposed to be over here seven times a week, twice on Sunday to, for prayer meetings before church. And after it's just like, what is, it was like this maximize the, the process for, uh, with a business mindset, you know? Right. Um, but I just didn't see that, that translating in, in spiritual terms. And I just, I feel like, it's over and over and over again. I see the same thing. The metric, you use that term, you know, what, it, what the metric is to determine whether or not this youth leader is, is successful or whatever. It sort of seems like that's contrary to everything that I've learned. <laughs> I don't know. 
Yeah. You know, I always learned that if they start teaching the truth, man, it that doesn't always attract more people. Yes. The truth often yeah, repels that, them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So now totally. What? And I, yeah, yeah. I think the whole business model thing, um, yeah, I think it's dangerous for the church and, you know, and, and the church that I was a part of, because it was so large, there had to be a lot of organizational structure. It just, it wouldn't have happened otherwise. So it's kind of coming out of necessity. Was, yeah, totally. And I don't, I'm not bagging on large churches. I'm not saying that you, that a church can't be faithful and be, have large numbers. I think it's really hard to do that faithfully. And I think probably the way that the church ought to be set up, probably when it gets to a certain size, you just can't sustain it um, as a family. You know, the church is a, is a family much more than it's a business. And obviously you have to have some organization, um, you know, when you're talking money and there are people that that's how they make their living, you know, at a certain size, a couple hundred people, you need to have a few people on staff. And I get that you got to have some organization. Mm-hmm. Um, but at some point that family aspect, it, it does just completely break down. And there's people, there's detractors that would say like, well, you know, if God's going to grow something, you know, and there's this movement, um, you know, who are, who are we to like put the brakes on it or whatever. <laughs> and it's, I don't know. I mean, maybe there's not a precedent biblically for how large a church should right. get, but it's sort of like what Billy was saying on the podcast. You remember the Ian Mackay thing he said? Um, so Ian Mackay owns Discord right. Records. He's the dude from Minor Threat and Fugazi. Um, and they're like super DIY right. ethic, you know? And, and the whole idea is like, it's like a bakery, you know? I bake a loaf of bread, somebody buys a bread, I make another loaf. It's like very sustainable. Right, right. In any organization, I mean, you get a couple people together, you're going to have trouble because we're sinful human beings. Right. <laughs> um, so there's always going to be that aspect to it, but that, that bigger, bigger is better and sort of like bringing the business model into the church. I just don't, I don't see it in the Bible. No, I, and I don't either. <laughs> I think we could both yeah. probably agree that, uh, while we're not condemning a, 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 a large church by any stretch, you know, hey man, I'm not saying God is not capable. I'm not. Um, yep. But I think we both feel, or at least based on our own experiences, see some of the red flags that also could appear. Hey. Here's a name I recognize, Alan Collins, a.k.a. My Alan. Alan writes, uh, Alan used to book Staves Acre a million years ago, in case anyone was curious. Alan writes, I never went to church until middle school, and once we started going, I deep dove into all of it, youth groups, camps, Christian music, etc. I thought one day I'd want to be a pastor. Later, I wanted to work in Christian music. Fast forward 25 years and I've gone through deconstruction slash reconstruction. I'm at a point now where I weigh everything related to the church against what Jesus said and did that we know of. There are things in the New Testament that don't sit well with me, like acceptance of slavery and treatment of women. I think we've gotten sideways by looking at all of the Bible as a message to us. It's a collection of historical writings, poems, prophets, Gospels, letters. The letters are to other Christians, not to everyone. We misinterpret things. 
I heard someone say once to not confuse the theology of Paul with the message of Christ, and that really resonated with me. The Bible is full of contradictions. Hearing that deliverance song in my head, still love those jams so much, though. A little deliverance name drop right there. Because it's a collection of books written by a ton of different people with different purposes, and it was compiled by people. I think the American church has turned the Bible into an idol, and in doing so, has nullified a lot of its value. Last year, for the first time in my life, I read it all the way through. While the rest of my church was high-fiving and back-slapping, I was frustrated and angry with a lot of stuff I read. That's a lot of what's led to my taking it apart to put it back together. I feel like I'm more on the path of discovering what Christianity and the church should be, but I could have just as easily gone the way of Dave Bazan and said, screw it all together. The tricky part now is that our kids are 14 and 11 and in the youth group. I want them to have a faith that's sustainable and fear that they may get from church and the youth group, that what they get from the church and the youth group can crumble for them like it did for me. Okay, so fair enough, but I would say I need more information. I want to hear about the contradictions. I'm not combating you or saying anything. I just want to hear them. Can't lay something like that out there and not follow it up. So my invitation to you, Alan, in gentle and and loving uh, request, right in, man. Let me know what you're talking about. Maybe we can get a, a longer dialogue on the on the subject. Until then, let's do a little more listening to Matt and Chris. What I'm trying to get at is how do you escape the human wreckage <laughs> after this, you know, like, okay, so whether it's a big church or a little church and maybe you're going to smaller places or whatever, there at some point, I just want to, I want to see an example of where, where repair has occurred, you know what I mean? And where where maybe people are broken from that process, but they, they come back and, and yes. get healed and get loved, you know? To me, to me so much of it, I, some of the stuff that you were sending me in the text message just it really hit me. I mean, it's all linked to losing the focus. If the focus is lost, then the ship is doomed, man. And if yeah. the focus of that Jesus Christ was an actual human being that walked this earth and the historical realities of that, and whether or not you're willing to accept that this human being ra- rose from the dead, right? Everything starts there and then goes on. But if we're not, if yeah. we're not going to that all the time, and we're focusing on this other stuff. Do we have a good business model? Are we, you know, how are the metrics working out? Like there's got to be somewhere in between there where people can just go get fed and be part of a family. Like, like you had mentioned. Yeah. I don't know. Totally. And I think uh, simpler, the simpler, the better. I mean, what is the function of the church? You know, Jesus talks about in the great commission to go into all nations and, and preach the good news and um, teach people all that I you know, all that I have passed on to you, the disciples go and, and teach them and baptize them in the name of the father, son, and the Holy spirit. So our marching orders are pretty, pretty yeah. basic, you know, and the marks of a church are, is the gospel being preached? Are people getting wet and are people taking communion? Like it's, that's pretty basic mm-hmm. stuff, you know? And once it's 
you know, it's, and again, it's not to say you can't have like church programming or ministries or whatever. It's just the more complicated it gets, um, especially when it's built on sort of this, this business model, it's just not, I, I haven't seen examples where that has ever yeah. gone well, you know? And then you've got a culture within the church where everybody, you know, then you're talking about like the visionary type of leadership. Um, I don't need a pastor to cast a vision for me. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, I already, we know what this is about already. We gather together, we hear good news, hopefully faithfully preached. We're going to eat some bread. We're going to drink some wine. Somebody's going to get wet and yeah. amen, you know, and then we'll go home. Um, and that's, that's pretty basic stuff. Uh, I don't need somebody to say, to define a vision for what it means to be a faithful member of that church and to give me marching right. orders of what it means to be a faithful Christian. It's like, no, I, I already have people in my life. Um, and God tells me I need to love those people. And, you know, by God's grace, hopefully I'll be able to do that. Um, but I don't need somebody giving me marching yeah. orders. It's so hard to do this in this, in this format because it's not, it's definitely not a half an hour worth of talking, you know, I'm sure it's not a half an hour long yeah. story, but if you could, like, you seem to be doing very well after that church imploded and all closed, you know what I mean? And you left and I mean, Billy's mentioned it to me before and I've now mentioned it a few times that the statement that you made really hit home that you will walk with a limp for the rest of your life, you know, but where, yeah. what is the answer to healing? I mean, is it enough to, to, to hold up the wound every time and, and from here on out, like, well, not getting involved with that because I'm wounded. You know what I mean? Like I see, I see that. Yeah. I saw that in my own life, and I've seen that in in mm -hmm. the lives of of people uh, over and over and over again. And to be honest, I've seen it in some of these emails. Yeah. How does a person get to a point where they let the wound go and start healing? Because isn't that kind of what we we need to do? I mean, I feel like that's what we have to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think it looks different for everybody. Like I said, and. And Billy's podcast, I mean, it really, I believe it's just by the, the grace of God that we haven't, my wife and I haven't totally yeah. failed, you know? I think in years past, somebody who was out of Christian community because of maybe a bad church experience or something, I would be a lot more inclined to be a little uptight about sure. that. Like, well, you, you know, you can't, um, you can't neglect like being in, in church community. Like you got to, at some point you got to get back in community. And after this experience, I don't, that's a really hard experience for people yeah. to go through. You know, there's sort of almost like a muscle memory that people have where if they've been in a community and they've been slapped around a bunch and suddenly their eyes are open to it. And a lot of times when people are being slapped around spiritually, they don't know sure. it until yeah. they're out. Um, and then they come out of it and they're like, I'm never, I'm never going back to that. And there's almost like a, like a muscle memory to it where it's like, and I've had experience of this too. Like you walk into a church and there's something that reminds you from a previous experience and you almost have right. a panic attack. Right. Like that's, that truly, that oh, is yeah. for real. And that's not, so I don't, I don't feel the need to jump on anybody who's a little bit slow sure. to get back to community. But I would say, you know, in the context of our conversation as I'm venting these texts <laughs> or whatever. And I, I I'm it. like, okay, I, <laughs> I need to, I need to be clear that when I hear from people who are saying I'm out of community, I don't want to ever go back. 
I'm not mad at yeah. those people. I'm not mad at any argument they would make. I'm mad at the effed up churches they've been a part of that yeah. have screwed them up, you know? And I, and what I'm mad about one of, one of the things that makes me angry is the main thing is never the main thing. So, you know, like the letters you're talking about, the emails, people will explain an experience that they had and they have a lot of reasons for why they're not going to go back. And I, I get that, but at the same time there, it doesn't have anything to do with what you're saying earlier. I mean, first Corinthians 15, Paul is talking about, I, I have communicated this, uh, of, of first importance, which, you know, Jesus came according to the scriptures. He lived and he died and he resurrected according to the scriptures. And later on he says, he basically says, if this isn't true, we're a bunch of idiots. And if that's not the baseline for Christian belief, and if somebody isn't getting that message over and over again, it, that just (laughs) makes me angry. Because it's a Christian church. We're, these are people that are in Christian churches, and yet they're not getting this teaching on yeah. a regular basis. And so now their experiences, people were mean to me, and now right. I'm leaving. Um, or and they've and they've been getting a bunch of yeah. moralism. Well, yeah, you know? people were mean to they've me, been getting, and now I'm leaving. But really, what that says is, people weren't preaching to me uh, Christ crucified and, re- and resurrected. <laughs> you know exactly. Isn't yeah. that? I mean, that's. I hate to make it simple, but I also think it is simple. You get off that simple truth and now you're hosed, you know? Totally. And I think that if somebody's experience, especially for somebody who's grown up in the church, and I would say, I don't want to pick on anybody, but I will, in more traditions that are more focused on like personal holiness. Um, so maybe like, I don't know, maybe in some aspects of methodism or like charismatic circles or whatever there's a big focus on someone's personal holiness Mm -hmm. and their growth and holiness so all the cultural baggage that comes with that when somebody comes of age and they realize oh wow i have hormones and i'm screwing up my (laughs) life now and oh i have an addiction now well what does that say about my faith and everything that their community has been telling them is this is the picture of a faithful christian this is what it looks like and you're not that so now people are hiding from at from sin um they're hiding from their community and they're putting on a show and i don't blame people that grow up and stuff like that to where they just completely bail you know it's like we hear we hear about this good news and this grace but it's not really there Hmm. in actuality so it makes me angry that people are in communities like that and they don't they're not hearing the cross preached regularly. They're not being reminded that their sins are forgiven and the grace of God needs to sound a little Hmm. bit crazy. I think it's like, it's free. It's not You hear People talk about, well, we don't want to preach uh, cheap grace. (laughs) Well, it's not, it's not cheap grace. It's actually, it's free. How much more scandalous is that? Cheap grace is pretty gross and awful. Sounds like a completely different thing. Cause that's not grace. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, so a gift by definition is free, slightly right? conditional, so. unconditional love sucks, <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, there was something you said in your email and I, I, I mean, I swear I could talk to you about this stuff for hours. We talked that one day for so long. <laughs> 
But, you know, there was a thing you wrote in there about this, uh, this lament and, and, uh, and yeah. answering that question of who do you say that I am? Do you, I mean, maybe kind of elaborate on that because honestly, I don't think I've ever heard that before. Hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, and this is more of maybe my pastoral experience. I mean, I, I just, I know when people are grieving and people are hurting, you know, you could talk all day, right? <laughs> but sometimes, you know, when we're grieving people, we need something to do to, you know, help us work through it. Right. And so, uh, you know, I read this book a number of years ago that was about working through grief. And one of the chapters uh, was called Writing a Psalm of Lament. Hmm. <laughs> and, um, you know, they had some very practical uh, suggestions. But basically, you know, read the Psalms of David and see how honest he was yeah. uh, about you know, what was going on. And so writing a psalm of lament is basically just taking some time to just verbalize, you know, the junk and, you know, kind of the loss that one is grieving over or, uh, you know, what is this hope, the lost hope? Mm -hmm. um, or what is this, what's the nature of the disillusionment with faith in general? So, I mean, you look at David and he says, you know, how long, oh Lord, must you hide your self from me? Right. You know, he's just, I mean, he's angry. He's, you know, was living out in the caves because people were trying to kill him. And, you know, so it begins with, with honesty and listing the questions and talking to God and saying, here's the reality of what's going on. But a lot of these Psalms turn, there's always a transition. Right, right. It's like, nevertheless, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nevertheless, I will, I will, I will, I will praise yeah. you or I'll just offer up. I will see the know, goodness of the Lord in the land of the living or something to that. Right, exactly. Or yeah, I'll I'll continue to praise you, Lord. I believe. Help my unbelief. Yeah, yeah. And then the second part of that psalm of lament can then turn into listing the ways. If we're honest, what are the areas and the ways that we have seen beyond a shadow of a doubt the hand of God in our life? Whether it's just you know the divine touch and the simplicity of mm -hmm. just our everyday life, or you know relationships that you've had with certain people, um, where you just, there was something real there, um, something beautiful, uh, and list those things. In a sense, it's like a, a list of gratitude. <laughs> what are the things that I am thankful for and where have I seen yeah. the hand of God? Not, you know, I'm hurt and all these people did this right. to me, but, you know, where were, what were some good things that... <laughs> That you've seen. Well, you know, you um, take it a little step further even, too, in the email when you talk about writing down the tra the traits of this God who you do not believe in anymore. Right. Like, I think right. that's terrifying. That yeah, scares the shit out of me because I now have to answer. I can't just have this ambiguous gripe. Right. I have to actually be like, oh, no. Like that to me is, is key is, is okay. Who is the God you don't believe in? You know, right. I think that's a, I've never heard that before. <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, I think, like I said that, I mean, if we list these traits, I mean, just like when I've asked my friends about that, you know, I, I tell them, well, I don't believe, I don't really believe in that God either. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so I think what can lead to healing from that hurt and that brokenness is, like smashing the idol mm -hmm. of the God <laughs> that 
I would say, as a false God and be open to the possibility that perhaps the God that one is rejecting doesn't actually exist (laughs) because Mm. he's nothing like, you know, the true God. And, you know, I, I too want to be careful even saying that, but, you know, we, we want, I think God is in the business of smashing our idols, you know, if we're open to letting him, to let the true God emerge. So, you know, so again, who do you say that I am? Well, who is Jesus Christ? I mean, and maybe our understanding of who Christ is, is, is colored by, you know, an awful experience. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so that image needs to die and to be resurrected. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. It's a pattern, I guess. Um, just out of curiosity, I, I don't know if you can answer this question or not. Keeping on with this thought of this writing of a lament and, and this, like, how do you write a lament without it being bad poetry? How do you put those, those thoughts into words and keep them from being, I don't know, oh, do not pity me, moon. I am here alone on this mountaintop. You know what I mean? It's like... I would say don't even worry about <laughs> any of that. Like, who cares what it looks like? Or I don't think there's anything. I mean, you just write it thinking I'm not showing this to anyone yeah. necessarily. I, I think, you know, like the Psalms say, a sacrifice unto God is a broken spirit, a heart that is broken and crushed, God will not despise. Mm. And so I think just just to be honest, yeah. just being honest and just kind of getting out on paper, you know, the stuff that's there. And who cares if it's poetic sounding or... <laughs> I just like, you know... I feel like people sometimes will balk at the idea of doing something like that because it sounds... <laughs> like, just remember, when you write this lament, this isn't actually going to be in the Bible and millions of people will read it, okay? It's just going to be <laughs> you and God, man. <laughs> right. Well, and I mean, if some people you know, feel like a psalm of lament. It sounds so formal. Right. Well, just take a piece of paper, draw a line down the middle. The Pros left column. And cons. <laughs> Here, yeah, here's the junk. Here's my brokenness. Here's my anger. Here's my questions. And then the column on the right, what are, what's going to be my nevertheless? Yeah, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I just think it's helpful to just to get out of the victim syndrome. Because even if somebody decides, well, after all of that, you know, I'm still out. Well, at least if they're out, they're doing it thoughtfully and um, honestly. Yeah, courageously. Um, if right. you decide, you know, after you... I'm just broken and it's everybody else's <laughs> right, fault. Right. And I mean, that's not adult faith. Sure. That is, that's junior high youth group. <laughs> <laughs> and it really does faith. come down I to mean, faith one way or the other, right? I mean, it's, you either have faith that there is a God or you have faith that there isn't, you know, or, or that he's, is nothing like the one you heard about or whatever. So you still have to make a mm-hmm. choice. Yeah. You know, well, I think Christianity is ultimately, it's just a confession of faith about this person. Hmm. <laughs> you know, there's apologetics and all of that, but you know, I'm, I think ultimately, again, it's who do you say that I am? Um, And again, that has a theological answer uh, and a personal, a very personal answer. Um, Somebody that I listen to and read a lot is there's this priest named Father Thomas Hopko, and uh, he died recently, but he, a wonderful writer, 
very gifted speaker. And he has this wonderful series called The Word of the Cross, where he just, he talks about that. He talks about what does it mean to take up one's cross daily and one's, just the reality of one's life. And he says it, if you're an adult for anyone, it's going to mean having to deal with the stuff you've been dealt. Yeah. I mean, you just have to face it. You know, maybe it was wonderful and maybe, you know, thank God. But, you know, for the most of us, there's, there's dark spots there. There's, there's, there's pits. There's, mm-hmm. you know, we've been victimized. But, you know, Christ was a victim, but he was never victimized. Right. And I think there's a difference there. Um, and so having to just deal with all of that and face it and, you know, trying to find God in the midst of all of that. And then he, he talks about that story from the Old Testament with the three holy youths, you know, in the furnace mm-hmm. where they were brought before the king. Uh, you know, they had been taken in captivity to to Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to bow before the idols and they didn't want to. And he said, well, if you don't bow, you're going to be thrown in this furnace. And so they didn't. And they were brought before the king. And the king said, well, you know, I'm going to throw you in this furnace if you don't (laughs) bow. You know, is your God going to come save you? And what they said to him is, is, well, whether he comes to save us or whether he doesn't, we're still not going to do that. Yeah, yeah. And then they were thrown in the furnace, and then, you know, obviously they were saved, and, yeah. you know, there was a fourth person there with them, which in our Eastern Orthodox iconography, it's an angel, but the halo around the angel is Jesus Christ. Huh. And so it's seen as kind of an Old, Test- Old Testament prefiguration of Christ. But there's this wonderful verse in the Septuagint version of that story where while they were in the midst of the flames, they stood up and they sang this beautiful long hymn Hmm. about glorifying God and his creation and everything that he's done. And, you know, they're in the midst of these (laughs) flames. And then there's this wonderful verse that says, and then the flames became like a dew (laughs) was blowing through it, like Uh the wind of a, of a dew blowing through it. And uh, it's just to me, a beautiful image and an icon of, Many times we feel like we're standing in those those flames of, you know, whatever. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but what does it mean to continue to, you know, kind of confess and profess a deep faith, even in the midst of that, whether he comes to save us or whether he doesn't, <laughs> rather than, oh, I can't believe God would throw me in these flames and then <laughs> screw this. I'm out of here. Imagine if that's what they said. <laughs> what you know? a dud of a Bible verse. <laughs> hey, Mark. Count me as one of the guys still in the faith. I went to church at age eight because I had heard they gave out candy and somehow never left. A few years later, after countless mind-numbing trips to the Christian bookstore with my grandmother, I finally decided to listen to music and pass the time. It was there I found unashamed, focused, etc. After reading the liner notes, band t-shirts, etc., I entered the rabbit hole of punk and hardcore. You gone, buddy. (laughs) I know that rabbit hole. In high school, I joined up with all the punk kids, who to this day are some of my best friends. For years, I didn't really know any other Christians. 
Sure, I wasn't as close to God as I could have been, but I still prayed, read the Bible, and had an ironclad faith. I sort of liked being the only Christian around. My faith was never contingent on other people. For better or worse, I never cared what the the rest of Christendom was doing. So many people leave the faith because of the hypocrisy of other Christians. That line of thinking never made sense to me because the actions of Christians have nothing to do with whether or not God is real, the Bible is true, etc. There are assholes everywhere. And if we judge everything by the people it produces, we probably wouldn't be into anything. I certainly, I certainly wouldn't be a 32-year-old vegan straight-edge punk rocker. Love the show, dude. Nazareth LeMay from the outside. Mark, I wanted to write about why I stayed in the church. I'm a pastor, different than most probably. I have been a youth pastor, associate pastor for around 14 and a half years. In this time, I've had some of the meanest and most dishonest things done to me by other people in the church and even some pastors. It's been incredibly rough on me and more importantly on my wife and three sons. The punk rock side of me wants to chuck it and work somewhere else while just attending church, but I can't. I genuinely feel a sense of calling on my life. I very deeply believe that the gospel is important and people need to know that Jesus loves them and there is hope. I can't escape it. I don't want to escape it. As awful as some of my experiences have been, I can't love Jesus and hate his wife. I still love the church. Yes, I really detest some of the things that we as humans do and our sinfulness as a part of it. But I still love the church. I recently was let go from a church with no severance, and the church was not told the truth about why I left. It was hard. But God opened the way for me to be the pastor of a small country church close to where we live. I now preach every week to start about 20, to about 25 people, and I'm doing my best to love them and teach the scriptures faithfully. I'm sure this is over 20, 200 words. Sorry for the length. You know us pastors. We are long-winded. Anyway, thanks for reading this, and thanks for what you do. I'm really excited about the conversations we are having. Bless you, my friend and brother. In his grip, Cal Callison from Winterset, Iowa. The burden borne by mankind is a heavy and a crushing thing. The word Jesus used means a load carried or a toil borne to the point of exhaustion. Rest is simply release from that burden. It is not something we do, it is what comes to us when we cease to do. His own meekness, that is the rest. Let us examine our burden. It is altogether an interior one. It attacks the heart and the mind and reaches the body only from within. First there is the burden of pride. The labor of self-love is a heavy one indeed. Think for yourself whether much of your sorrow has not arisen from someone speaking slightingly of you. As long as you set yourself up as a little god to which you must be loyal, there will be those who will delight to offer affront to your idol. How then can you hope to have inward peace? The heart's fierce effort to protect itself from every slight, to shield its touchy honor from the bad opinion of friend and enemy, will never let the mind have rest. Continue this fight through the years, and the burden will become intolerable. Yet the sons of earth are carrying this burden continually, challenging every word spoken against them, cringing under every criticism, smarting under each fancied slight, tossing sleepless if another is preferred before them. 
Such a burden as this is not necessary to bear. Jesus calls us to his rest, and meekness is his method. The meek man cares not at all who is greater than he, for he has long ago decided that the esteem of the world is not worth the effort. He develops toward himself a kindly sense of humor, and learns to say, Oh, so you have been overlooked. They have placed someone else before you. They have whispered that you are pretty small stuff after all. And now you feel hurt because the world is saying about you the very things you have been saying about yourself? Only yesterday you were telling God that you were nothing, a mere worm of the dust. Where is your consistency? Come on, humble yourself, and cease to care what men think. And finally, from Mark Laughlin something beautiful. Regarding being in or out of the church, I am a bit of, of a halfway point. I grew up in conservative evangelical churches with many of the same views that you have expressed from your experience. No secular music, no psychology, the Bible as the infallible er inerrant word of God, so long as it's interpreted within the parameters of what we already believed, and so on. My wife and I stopped attending church about a year ago, and in an attempt to put words to all the reasons for leaving that I was feeling, I wrote a list of reasons that were pushing me away from the church. I called the list the tyranny of truth. We are water treaders. The inherent energy of God pushes us up while our theology pushes us down. Our affirmations kill and destroy. Our condemnations kill and destroy. Our view of scripture enchains the word. Our view of the spirit quenches. We are unknowingly arrogant through to our very cores. We rely on strategy, not spirit. We rely on our brains, not wisdom. We affirm in order to deny. We use truth as a rod. We care about our constructs more than our people. We are barely human. We have no tempest within us. Plenty of churches certainly do not fit that list, I hope, but the churches that I have been around from good Bible-believing ones to more quote-unquote liberal ones fit it more or less. So even though my wife and I have decided not to attend church for now, I don't feel completely done with it. I just don't know where to go. I have never felt more challenged and changed by God than I have these last couple years, and I am interested in that process, continuing with or without an official church. Thanks for your music and your show. I gotta say it one more time. We have no tempest within us. Thank you very much, Mark. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies, and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you, who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways, but when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind our sins sweep us away. 
No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. O look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. As Isaiah 64, and I read this passage because a song I'm about to play is, in my opinion, kind of related. If a little extreme in as far as examples go, but if we contrast an expectation of perfection with what we know about ourselves, why would we, sincerely wounded as we are, I'm going to walk with a limp for the rest of my life? Why would we hold on to wounds in lieu of finding some healing? I'm not saying your wounds aren't real, okay? Not at all. And there's a reason why the Bible states that those in position of authority will be subject to higher judgment, okay? But that doesn't change what is true of us. I am a wretch. I am guilty. I am guilty of many of the very things I've mentioned negatively on these last couple episodes. And I can't remove that truth from my conscience. It all comes back to the same thing. Filthy rags. All our righteous acts are filthy rags. If we truly know what we've been claiming to know, filthy rags. Not perfect. Never was perfect. Anyway, the following song, which Chris Foley drew to my attention after our talk as sort of an exercise in perspective, is it's disturbing. <laughs> it's haunting. It's also, upon many listens, spot on, I think, for our chat here. So, keeping in mind all that we've talked about, especially that portion of Tozier's Pursuit of God, these truths post the end game challenge. If we, being imperfect to the point of wretchedness, are to hold on to the wounds of other imperfect wretches, aren't we, for all our pain and suffering, just hypocrites? Do we want to be healed? And if, in the battle that is life, we've turned our back on a beautiful faith because of these wounds, who wins? a drinker and his mother cried in bed folding John Wayne's t-shirt when the swing set hit his head the neighbors they adored him for his humor Underneath the house there Find the few living things Riding fast in their sleep Oh, the dead Twenty-seven people Even more, they were boys With their cars, summer jobs Oh my God Face paint white and red. 
So what do you think, folks? Does any of this resonate with you? What do you feel about the suggestion that without grace, none of us are any better than the best or the worst of the Christians we've encountered in life? Or even the predators, the thieves, the liars, you know, people like me and maybe you. How do you measure up in the final analysis against John Wayne Gacy Jr.? P.S. Please don't murder anybody. But can you admit that at some point in your life you had to acknowledge your greatest deeds were filthy rags? Who is perfect? Anything less than perfect just seems imperfect. Not a lot of room for varying degrees of imperfection. Are you asking perfection from imperfect beings? And are we, being imperfect, even capable of comprehending what perfection looks like in real life? Is there any hope for us after all the damage that has been done? Is there any redemption? It's interesting. It seems it might take a miraculous God to achieve such a thing. A miracle worker, right? What does the devil like? Billy and I were just uh, talking about this episode and some of the ongoing conversation on Urban Achiever, on Bad Christian, on Jay Baker's podcast. Look, it's really not that important that you agree with everything that any of us or some of these others are saying. Are we about the good gifts and the good news that we've received? Put it another way. What does our adversary want us about? Sharpening our swords all the better to cut each other with? I'm confident that that's just how he likes us. Did you really think he wasn't still prowling? Let's get some scholars in here. Chris and Matt aren't the only voices, and I know they know that. What portions of the scripture are meant to be taken literally? What are merely illustration? We can talk about that. But to this, 
I would say, I don't understand God. I don't understand why he does what he does or allows what he allows. I can't explain tragedy. But please, allow me one last stretch here. I also can't explain good fortune. Why did God see fit to turn me away from certain doom? And even before that, I can't explain why I get to live in a place with running water, a bed, food, health, or why my brain works while others don't, or why I didn't die in the same earthquake that someone else did. Why do I have a life that includes the ability to get and maintain a job, or a wife who loves me despite of my many failings? Why do I get to make a podcast and talk to you on a computer that I own in relative comfort? Why? There's a lot about life I can't explain or, and I don't comprehend, you know, but not all of it is bad. Look, since you can be part of the conversation, why don't you? What do you say? If you'd like to take part or put me on blast for something you heard, please do. I actually look forward to it. You can email me at uh, thetwilightzone at ineverwas.com. Or tweet us at, at NeverWasPodcast. There's a Facebook page for the show as well. I'll put links on the show page, so do it. My special thanks to Matt Johnson and Christopher Foley for their humble contributions these last two episodes. And I say humble because, again, they never came across to me as people who thought they knew it all. And I think that's key. And my inexpressible thanks to those of you who had the courage to write in and share what's happened in your lives. I apologize to those of you I said I'd get on the show and did not. I did what I could, and eventually I had to admit that there's just only so much time. Jeremy Orris, in particular, I'm thinking of you. You are not alone, okay? And to Sean, Dan, Benjamin, Aaron, and Leland, thank you so much for contributing to the Patreon tip jar. Anyone that wants to, by all means. But what would be awesome is if you just shared this show with people. Just tell them about it. Let's get some people talking. Tonight's show, you heard the incredible Sufjan, 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 I never knew. Stevens' John Wayne Gacy Jr., uh, suggested by Chris Foley himself. Um, we also heard My Old Band, The Crucified, and our song about old Robert the Farting Preacher Tilton. And of course, Robert Tilton himself from Satan's top 10 favorite Robert Tilton Insanely Crazy Moments off the Christian Comedy Channel on YouTube. We also heard from Salty. And Amen and Praise the Lord from the Kids Praise Album 1. We heard It's Beautiful Once You're Out Here from my band Staves Acres album, How to Live with a Curse. We also heard from the great A.W. Tozier and his The Pursuit of God. If you don't have that book, get it. We also heard Isaiah 64 from The Bible. This show was produced by Billy Power of the Urban Achiever Podcast. This episode and all other episodes of Never Was can be found on iTunes. We're on Twitter, Facebook, as I mentioned. We're all over the place. I hope to hear from you soon. And now, until next week, rainbow out, but still very much in. <laughs>